Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Dr. Lizette Garcia, the first half of our two-part married couple double header. Lizette Garcia holds a PhD in experimental psychology from Tufts University and has taught at Harvard, Columbia, and was a professor at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. A native of El Paso, Texas, and the daughter of Mexican immigrants, Lisette's experience as a Mexican-American woman and human rights advocate has taken her to many different worlds, many of which we explore in our conversation. We also discuss her experience with Buddhism and her four years of silent meditation practice. Lisette joined us to mark the publishing of her book, Poderosas, Conversations with Extraordinary Ordinary Women. We bring you part two next week when a guest host interviews Lizette's husband, Barrett Martin. And now, Dr. Lizette Garcia. Hi. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Can you Very hear nice. me okay? I can. Uh, how about how about other way around? Can you hear me? All good, thank you. Well, thank you for making time to talk today. Oh, well, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Shall I call you Dr. Garcia? Oh, you can call me Lisette. Okay. Thank <laughs> please, you. Please. I'm Lawrence. <laughs> Lawrence. <laughs> Good. My father, my father is Mr. Purrier. <laughs> oh, yeah. I hear you. I still don't know who Dr. Garcia is. <laughs> well, that's actually, that's a funny comment. I, I was just listening to um, another interview you had done, and the conversation was uh kind of explored that notion of um, sort of letting go of self. Mm -hmm. And um, just to sort of jump right in, I, uh, I'm curious. I think that it's very easy superficially to understand the notion, um, especially when somebody's talking about their spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what are the dimensions of that mean to you in terms of not just identity, but um, judgment you know, the, the sort of voice in your head notion of that. Um, what did, what did the letting go of self mean to you and your work? Um, wow. <laughs> That's a question. We're going to, we're going to have a fun hour. Together. <laughs> let me put my drink down and let me buckle in here. Uh, <laughs> wow. Well, you know, what's interesting is, um, we all have a story, right? We all have a story about who we are, who we are in the world, what the world is. Um, and there are a lot of factors in, that have to fall into place for those stories to exist, right? So when I started studying Buddhism, mind you, up until that point, I had been studying about identity and culture and everything that helped me understand why people made the decisions they made, why we have the stories we have and why we hold on to them so tightly in spite of the fact that they hurt us, (laughs) you know, and um, the story even more than the thing. Mm. So when I started studying Buddhism, I'll give you just a really simple example. This, this, this one teacher just said, okay, um, oops, what's this, you know? And it's like he's holding up a pen. Okay, it's a pen. And if a dog walks in and he puts it in his mouth, what is it? Well, it's a chew toy. 
emptiness, right? Is it a pen or is it a chew toy? Which is it really? And then it was, it's such a simple example, but something just clicked in my mind the first time I heard it. And I'm like, oh my God, it's not a pen. My definition of pen is that with which I write. Well, does it cease to be a pen when the ink is gone? Or was it never a pen if there's no ink? Or if I start taking it apart, wh which, part, which part is pen? You know, or does it have to be all the parts together before it is that? You know, which then means like all the parts of the story have to be in place in order for that situation that that a trauma or the love or the whatever story we have about whatever particular thing to exist has to have all these aspects because it doesn't exist self-existently it was never a pen from its own side else the dog would come and he'd start writing with it right so when i start talking about really looking at the self it's looking at all the pieces and parts that I thought made me up, you know, the parts of, of being Mexican American, the parts of being, you know, a child of immigrants, the, 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 the difficulties of my life, the, the, the things I've overcome, all, all of the beautiful things I've seen in the world, you know, I had to like go in and see that they weren't not me, you know, and as much as losing a hand wouldn't be I would be no less me if I lost a part of my body, mm -hmm. you know, like I can't say the hand would go off thinking its own things if, if it were cut off, you know, and if it were me, it would, it would have yeah. to. Yeah. So you, you really start delving into all the pieces and parts of this self and this notion of, 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 of who you are and you challenge them and you challenge them and you look at them. And you see, they could not have existed ever the way you thought you were in this jail you have built for yourself. This gilded cage um, <laughs> was never there. You could fly, right? And then, then you just get these moments of insight where you see the truth of it and you see the potential for everything. And it becomes like the movie, The Matrix, right? Like, like you think that's air you're breathing? You know, <laughs> challenge it, look at it. Is it really that? And yeah. in your practice, what does challenging mean? Or what, no, what, what, what form does challenging take? Yeah, well, in my daily practice, it's in meditation. Uh -huh. You know, so I'll sit in meditation and there are different types of meditation, right? There's types where you just kind of, review stuff you your day or what's going on or what have you or things where you're just really trying to um challenge your truth so you would go through your beliefs right okay i'm sitting here i believe lisette is sitting here meditating you know is, is lisette in her hand if lisette lost her hand would she be any less lisette no 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 if i'm not daughter if i'm not wife if i'm not this if i'm not that where is lisette who what is lisette you know is it the name is it the definition and whose definition you know <laughs> and so you just start like it's like mental jujitsu where you just kind of choo 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 start like challenging every way your mind wants to exist 
right? Like that's that that's the beauty, especially of Tibetan Buddhism. Like they give you the tools to really look at how tight we hold on to our stories because we so deeply want to exist. Yeah. We're afraid of disappearing, right? That's why we have a fear of death. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. The, I'm a I'm a very big. Well, I was about to say I'm a very big fan of. Um, of the book denial of death, but I can't quite, that's a strange fandom, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but there's also something, there's something I find frustrating about the thesis in that book, which is if you deny your fear of death, you're in denial. <laughs> and so I don't like that tautological game that it plays. Right. It doesn't allow right. for, it doesn't allow for an overcoming. It says it's so deeply fundamental to the human experience that you cannot be without the fear of death. Um, unless I'm misunderstanding, but that that's how I read it. I think that, that's how, yeah, I think that's, I, I yeah, I, that's what I think it says myself. Um, yeah. But I don't agree with it either. <laughs> and so I, and I wonder then, are you just in denial? But, but I won't do yeah, that to you. I, <laughs> could be, except yeah. that, that I have like taken the car out for a drive, right? Like I, yeah. I gave up everything in my life to really question that, to question um, um, how things exist and, and what, what is denial and what is just a story and, and what's the story of the story and, and can one get beyond it? I mean, the, the, the teachings of the Buddhas are 2005 and, you know, 2,500 years old and they were written by monks for monks, you know, do they work in today's day and age for women too? You know, it's all was and it's a science. That's, again, the reason I'm such a scientist. And I think um, Tibetan Buddhism was very, it just called to me because it, it allows for that scientific approach, right? And then you have to lose that <laughs> in order to get beyond it. But it gives you that tool to really kind of question and question and look at and go deeper and what are you holding on to there? And, and death, and what is death? And what is the definition of death? And I mean, if you ask me, I mean, Barrett was laughing. My husband was laughing at me the other day because it was 10 years ago, just recently, that I went into this three-year retreat that I did. Yeah. And um, it was the first time, time that I took him to the place where I did it. And, and he's like, it's so beautiful. It's so um, nice I, I had this like vision in my head of something so rustic or you know I was like no we it would you know we, we did it all super nicely and by code and it was very you know legit but but the point is that um I said somebody questioned something I did very early on and I looked at them I said well, and it was written, right? Because it was a silent meditation retreat. I said, I came in to assassinate the self. You know, like, like, why are you questioning me on this or that? Like, this is my one mission. I gave up my ties to the world. I gave up even, and I said goodbye to my mom. Who knows if she'll be alive when I come out? Because I really, I want to, I want to know. I want to know what it, what is all this about? And can we get beyond it? And is enlightenment a real thing? Or is it just another story to help people get along you know or, or yeah. you know i i just needed to know well just to um to provide the context for listeners so you did a, a 40 month 
silent silent meditation retreat in Mexico? Is that what it was? Uh, no, in Arizona. Actually. Oh, in Arizona. Yeah. So it was, uh, how many months was it? Now, now you've got me. Yeah, it was almost, um, it was three and a half years almost. So yeah. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. That's about and, 40. And would it be trite to ask, um, did you accomplish what you thought you would? Or did you, did you leave with a sense of, this satisfied the yearning I had going into it? Or is that not the, I, I, you know, I'm struggling to ask the question the right way to see what happened on the other side that, that led you to say, yes, <laughs> I did this <laughs> other than the yeah. mere endurance. Right. Cause I think, I think as, a, as someone who hasn't done that, that's the first thing I think comes to like a lay person's mind, right? It's like, it's an endurance test. And I, I sense you cannot treat it as an endurance test. Right. It's, it's definitely um, not a sprint. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, it's very interesting because a lot of people say to me, like, well, I can't even imagine not speaking for a weekend, you know, let alone that long. So, so there are endurance factors um, that maybe I was not really thinking about when I first went in. You know, um, just the fact that three and a half years, life still happens, yeah. you know, just because you're in a confined situation and you're not using your, your typical modes of communication, life still happens. And, and no matter how far and deep into the depths of my mind I went, it was still there <laughs> and it looked different at different points, mind you. But, um, you know, there, there was, there was just the, oh yeah, you know, my, um, the temperatures dropped, my, my water pipes broke and um, I've got no water for a winter, no cold, no, no warm water for a winter, or no water having to go out of a jug or, or you know, um, really never having hot water the whole three and a half years and what that would mean and what that would look like, you know, and, <laughs> um, and how cold a desert can really get. Um, wow. All of those, they're just plain endurance. Or just, you walk around the house, you stub a toe. What do you say? You say, ow, you say something out loud and you catch yourself in those very beginning times, just like, Oh, wow, you know, we really do use speech all the time. And um, until month, you know, a couple months into it, I wasn't even speaking in my dreams. Um, wow. So yeah, absolutely. There's just a plain human endurance aspect. And then there is, I had done a lot of retreat before I ever went into the three year retreat, you know, so, so I was well prepped and trained. I studied for uh, about 10 years. Um, so I went in, I felt like I had all my toolbox, you know, I had my toolbox ready for anything that came up. And um, always something will come up that you don't expect. And I think the biggest thing that I came away with is yes, it's a valid path, you know, to be able to say like, wow, those steps you know, steps of the path to meditation, they always have like, well, you know, you've gone to this phase, because these are the things that you'll experience, you know, and, and on and on. And 
yeah, some of that happened. And then some of it happened differently for me. You know, being a woman, so many aspects of, of the realizations and the, the going deeper um, were even just emotional, you know, and, and that, that really isn't talked about, like the, the arrival of emotional balance, mm. you know, uh, and the, the strength of that, that space um, where the world can happen around you, life will happen but there's just this, like, you're just that, that, that speed train that just doesn't quite get touched, even though things will go up and down around you. Um, it's interesting yeah. to hear you say that, um, you know, you had your toolbox and you're sort of, you go in thinking you're prepared for anything and then something comes up you're not prepared for. And, and my thought as you were saying it was, well, isn't that life? Like, you know, <laughs> why, exactly. why would, why would silent meditation retreat spare That's you that? That's <laughs> right. That's right. And when you go in, you kind of don't think that way. You think I'm prepared for anything, but life happens. Three and a half years is a long time. Yeah. And as well as I thought I had done to say goodbye, make sure, make amends, you know, <laughs> like do the whole like prepare for death be, uh, before going into retreat. Um, because the deal was that I wouldn't hear from the outside at all. You know, like if, wow. if my mom died, if my dad died, I wouldn't know till I came out, you know. And um, so the goodbyes were real deep goodbyes. And uh, giving away my last, the last bit of money I had and all of that, you know, was for me just all the things that society tells you are important, letting them go, you know, um, challenging every aspect of, of that whole story. And then uh, going in and realizing you take the whole world with you in your head, <laughs> you know, and that it pulls at you from the outside too. I would imagine, I would imagine yeah. that just the distractions sometimes that could, that could come with wondering. Um, I'm curious in the process of preparing to go, did you find that anyone in your life, um, did, did anyone react negatively and feel it was a scary thing or a selfish thing? Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah, I'm curious I, about I mean that. Everybody uh, at some level, anyone who loved me <laughs> felt abandoned, right? Like I was going to abandon them. Like um, uh, my mother, my mother worked Catholic, right? I was brought up Catholic. And, and so uh, it was just for her like an impossible thing to even imagine not having access to her daughter for three and a half years, you know, and um and why would do that? And why after having worked so hard to, to get a PhD and do all these things with my life just to walk away from it, yeah. you know, um, for her just didn't make any sense. Um, and I remember walking into or driving, they were driving me to where we were going to do a retreat. And um, my mom was still like crying and saying, like, how could you do this to me? You know, and I'm like, mom, you know, it's, it's really not about you. Like, I love you. And I am trying to be the best person in the world that I can. But there are these, these, these mysteries of life that I, I, 
if I could get beyond, maybe I can teach to you or share with you and maybe you won't have to suffer in some of the human ways that we humans suffer. Who knows? I don't know, and I, but I need to find out. And her husband chimed in and it was a, actually quite a surprise. And he said, listen, he said, um, he said, if you thought that you might have a chance at becoming like a, an angel before dying, would you try? Mm-hmm. And he said, and I looked at him because I'd never used, I was very careful about my language about, you know, and he said that to her and she's just like, well, yeah. And he's like, I think you need to look at it like that. You know, like she's a person who's, who's done all these amazing things and she still wants to try to be better, you know, do more. Um, you know, is it checking out of life to say, you know, well, I'm going to disappear because I want to help the world. You know, is that a cop out <laughs> to say, well, you're in some little locked in some room. You're not helping anyone. That's totally selfish. I mean, that's a legit, totally legit question, you know, but then there's power, the power behind that act, right? There's those, there's that research about how when the Dalai Lama came to Washington, D.C. and held a meditation that, that, you know, crime went down by, I can't even remember the percentage, but like a percentage that was palpable, you know, where the the city felt it. And and so it was a real strong belief in that kind of power that we just don't understand that perhaps could be harnessed and maybe could make a difference, you know? And if there is even a maybe possibility, wouldn't it be worth trying yeah you know? it's it's the ultimate why not it's the ultimate yeah yeah um another thing that struck me i i was reading um something you wrote on the um on the world migration fund site about living in this sort of liminal space and not being this nor that or you know you gave a few examples when i was learning a bit about your time in the retreat i thought this is a very this is this it's interesting in that um, I wonder how it contributes to a sense of otherness in that I just think about what I'm bringing to the conversation. Like there's a, there's a, um, not everyone has done this. So it makes it, there's a, there's a curiosity about it and it mm-hmm. makes you, it makes you a curio in a way, mm-hmm. right? It makes you, I wonder if, I, I, I have to wonder if you, you know, you're an object for people's questions then. And how does that feel? What is that? What is that? Is that a, are you okay with that? I guess. Well, one would think that would be the case. Wouldn't you? I found, I found it to be absolutely the opposite. Mm. I found it to be that people, it scares people on some sort of deep level that they kind of don't even want to go there. So I get asked very few questions about my experience. And I mean, surprisingly few. <laughs> and, um, and that's okay too. You know, yeah. in fact, when I came out, I realized I was kind of like an alien. Like I just, yeah. everything, it was just off. It took me a good two years before I felt like 
oh, I can walk and talk like a duck again, you know, (laughs) but I'll tell you, I had to make great efforts to appear normal. And it's what made people feel safe. And it's what made people feel good. And so why wouldn't I give that to them? And if they didn't want to know, why would I force anything on them? All I could do is be a be the example, you know, when I was preparing to speak with you, the thought I kept having was um, how, how impolite it would be to have some of this conversation or whether it would be loaded with like microaggression to basically focus on something that is so different. And I was, I, I really, I just, at some point I said, I can't have this conversation if I'm, if I'm, I got too in my head about it and too afraid yeah. to ask you any questions. And so at the risk of doing that, I decided not to worry about it. So I apologize if I, if I am not no, being no, sensitive I love to your experience. It. No, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Go um, for it. Go for it. Um, no, I, I can, I can, I can meet anyone wherever they are. And, and I don't ever feel, you know, like a, a friend recently told me just recently, this happened last week. She said, I was so pissed at you when you went. I was so pissed that you would leave and maybe I would get cancer again and you wouldn't be there. Mm. Like I was so pissed. And, and she said, and I couldn't even tell you that I was pissed because of me, like thinking about, well, what about me? She's like that. I, all I could say was like, you're going to leave your mother. <laughs> like I had to put it off on somebody else. <laughs> yeah. And I was just, and I get it. I know I yeah. understood it, yeah. I, I could totally see why that would bring that up for people. Yeah. Could you define for me what the field of social psychology is? I, sure. I, I actually found myself struggling to truly sort of grok exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. So you get like sociology that is studying group behavior. And then social psychology is like, what is the behavior of that individual within that group? Oh, well, that, there you did. It's pretty, <laughs> All right, well, that was yeah, easy. It's pretty simple. It's <laughs> pretty <was> simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, so my friends used to joke, right? Like, you know, like, what does Lisette, what does Lisette do? Oh, yeah, she has her PhD in messing with people, you know? <laughs> they didn't use the M word. They <laughs> used yeah. the F word. Gotcha. Well, I'll tell you what, you, 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 sh- you might consider updating the definition of social psychology on the Wikipedia page because they used a lot more words to say what you just said. And it didn't do, uh, it didn't do ignorant old me any, any justice. Um, that's amazing. Something, uh, I promise you we'll talk about the book. I just, there's no, so many, okay. there's so many strands in your life that I find, um, just so fascinating and I'm, and I'm enjoying learning about. And, um, Another thing that, that you talked about that seemed really powerful and important to me is how you saw the border change when you were growing up. And um, I, I actually, it was only a few sentences, but I actually found it very heartbreaking. Um, and I wonder if, if you could maybe in your own words, talk, you know, just tell me that, that sort of story or that, that narrative yeah. around what you saw as you were growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... So I grew up in El Paso, Texas, right, right along that border. In fact, I could see the Rio Grande from my bedroom window um, before some houses were built up. But back in the day, there weren't many houses. And um, I describe it in the book as being like a frog in boiling water because you don't even recognize it until you look back at it. Right. And it, and it truly was like that. 
when I was a child, um, there wasn't even a, a fence. There, there wasn't, there was, uh, the only border was the river itself. And there was still that thing about the immigration. You know, I, I talk about that too. Like we, we would be kids and we would be like, la migra, la migra, you run, run, hide, hide. You know, we would all run and we would all hide. And, and, and there was this kind of um, fear of what they did to people if they took them. Right. And we had immigrants walking by and we did help hide them sometimes. And so it was a very real, very tangible. Why them, not me? Like, and sometimes they would ask us kids, they would stop us and say, where do you live? Where are your families? Where were you born? You know, and you're like, what if I answer something wrong? What if they take me <laughs> like, you know, and and now we live in this world where families are really actually torn apart. But the militarization, yeah. I mean, it went from no fence to chain link fence. And I remember thinking, I remember, this isn't even like post fact. I remember being a kid and thinking, seeing it going up and just being like, well, I guess we do that with our homes. You know, I guess we do that with our homes. Okay. Okay. You know, and not thinking about the political implications, not, you know, I was a kid, so I wasn't thinking beyond the mere just, okay, it's a fence. Then it was barbed wire, you know, and then from barbed wire to, you know, all of a sudden felt like a blink. And it, I think it happened during the Reagan years, but they put these posts every mile. And within those posts sat a guy with like a machine gun. And then these stealth helicopters shining lights and trying always to catch people like, like animals, you know? And then it was when I went away to college and came back that mm. I was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. I get the political implications of this. I get the, like, I still have family on the other side of that wall. And what does that mean for us? And what does it mean for my value? If you think I belong on that side over there? but I don't belong over there, you know? And also all of these questions coming up and I'll tell you, here's the crazy thing. Even in three-year retreat, because we were on that, again, close to the border, there was still one time I went for a walk and I ran into an immigration officer with a newbie. And it was the most sh shocking experience in, in the world to be so pure and <laughs> careful with my whole world's experience to run into this person. I mean, obviously, he must have known we were there because he just kind of like turned around and kept going. And obviously, I didn't look like I had just been walking for 10 days, you know, so they didn't think to take me but, but they would catch people on that land, it was a 1000 acres of land, and they would just catch them, helicopter them out and take them, you know, and throw them back or whatever they did I don't know but that process just became more and more palpable until it's come to where it is now where it's this this iron wall um, and and it's a funny joke the Texas governor said go ahead put up your wall they'll just get a higher ladder you know <laughs> I mean like like what are you trying to really you know, it's it's a it's a political border, but it's so emotional for so many people. You know, and it's so 
palpable. And a lot of the work I do now is with immigrants. So I hear the stories every day about how it's affecting them, how oh, one person didn't even know she wasn't American until she was 18 and tried to get wow. a job because she'd been just brought here as a baby. You know what I mean? Like all these stories, you know, oh, and it, there's so many facets of the prism and um, just, it just feels like the Berlin Wall. Have you ever, ever seen the Berlin Wall yeah. and then just seen it since, you know, it's just like, feels like that to me. Like, and I didn't even know that until I saw that. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've often wondered how, it, just as a mental trick, um, if, if people who were so hung up about the immigration problem, however you want to refer to yeah. it, um, their immigration problem, if they could <laughs> think about, instead of imagining that there are all these people that want to come here and take what you have, if you could just think about it in terms of what is it that they're trying to leave and maybe exactly. if you could just find some compassion in that exactly. um that, that but that's the help. thing you know and but people are like okay but don't bring it over here right and then and then that's what that's what that line of reasoning has has brought it's just i don't know it just and it goes to kind of today's elma um martin luther king day right and yeah. i was really thinking about how he worked and not just about like it wasn't just about race. It was about, you know, financial, economic inequality as well. And, and he knew that we had to include like white people in the civil rights fight us. We would never get anywhere. It'd like be like a one-sided dialogue. Right. And, um, and it feels like that today. It feels like it, it's not just about race. It's not just about this political boundary it's it's very economic and it's very tied to like we don't want you to take our jobs we don't want you to come and steal our things we don't you know even even liberals right i i am all for it and listen to but i don't want you in my backyard either you know and it's and it's it's um and we can't even take care of our own you know so there's there's so many aspects of of this inequity that these political boundaries create when really we should just be taking care of each other as humans and then nobody would want anything yeah. <laughs> right it's very socialist to say but um but we yeah. have we have we have all the resources here it's 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 no no more and no less complex than how they're allocated i mean it's really that's right yeah, that's yeah. right and we still have homeless people and we just walk by you know and it, it just it, it 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 it's created the very problem that we're facing just politically now you know yeah. and um there was a piece um i think in the new york times magazine yesterday um about the current i forget what it's called it might have been called the american crisis or something of that nature but it was talking about what happened in the capital and sort of what's next and potential outcomes and what can happen over the next several years. And it's not a great read. I mean, it's not, I don't, I actually, you don't need to read it, but, um, <laughs> but it, it, it really gave me a little bit of understanding because the author talked about the two types of people that are involved in some of the chaos making right now and um, how they actually use each other even within that camp. And he referred to them as the, the gamers and that's mm -hmm. like the career politicians who all they care about is staying in power. 
And then there's the breakers, the people who are just sort of, I don't know, I think anarchist is, is giving them too much intellectual <laughs> weight, but um, you know, they, they just want to break the system. And for a long time, the gamers were using the breakers mm -hmm. as sort of their, their ideological troops. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, what we're seeing now is they're sort of in this moment, at least they're turning on each other a bit because the gamers actually don't want to destroy the system. And yeah, he talks about a lot of other things, which we don't need to get into here, but that, that framing of it was very interesting to me. And um, it, it made things make a lot more, it was troubling, but it made sense to me. Well, and I think that's always been the situation and who the gamers and who the breakers are has just shifted and changed <laughs> depending yeah. on the conversation, yeah. you know, but if the breakers just look at each other, we'd realize that, you know, you know, the boundary and the lines and the other rings are just, um, they're not what we think they are. That's right. You know, we're not different and we're all struggling in it. And it, and it, and it is terrible for a lot of people right now. And, um, and we, we aren't alone right now. We feel so alone and then add the pandemic on top of it. Uh, I had years to prepare for my isolation and these <laughs> people didn't, you know, most people didn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that surprising to see that the role of things like the internet and social media and how, what they've played into this. If you think these are people that otherwise might've been busy at work or yeah. living life. And now they've, even if they're working from home, they're on a personal computer, nobody, you know, they, they just have time and frustration. And um, it's, it's easy. It's easy to demonize. I do think it's easy to understand, but it's, really difficult to figure out where we go you know how we do it together um i agree yeah um what yeah, was my, my impulse is just to like drop it <laughs> i'm like i think yeah. i'll just drop social media because it's who's it really helping you know I don't. yeah i'll tell you a few right after the the 2016 election i did just that and I'm, I, so I get, I get on a little bit of a high horse about it <laughs> more, more in terms of my narrative is how much angst it took out of my day-to-day -day life yeah. by, by dropping that. I mean, how I was, much time you got back, right? <laughs> yeah, I would find myself, you know, angry at loved ones or just people posting things that it's like, I, I really don't care what you think about 90% of these issues. And it's not even my business what you think. Like, let's just keep some of our thoughts to ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it might be better. <laughs> um, so what was the, what was the, um, the impetus and the genesis for, for your new book? Actually, um, it was a, idea I had I hijacked from my husband okay <laughs> yeah fair. totally but you yeah, did the work so <laughs> I did the work yeah no he had this idea he just you know he had finished his first two books and he he was just kind of musing how some of his greatest teachers had been women mm -hmm. and he was just trying to figure out how to how to honor that how to speak about it what it meant even and in the process, I just kind of, we just decided to go around interviewing all the incredible women we knew, you know, some of them made the book, some of them, maybe we'll make the next book. Um, but it was really just, how do we have the deep conversations? 
like so many times you meet people, you see people, you know, when, when, when one could travel and um, you just kind of catch up about nothing, but we wanted to catch up about something deeply. And that's what these conversations were. And so we traveled not just the country around the world to have these conversations with people. And, um, and that's how this book became what it is. And that's why I couldn't um, just not include him. You know, some, I got some good pushback um, early on about why are you including a man in a book about women, you know? And the more and more time went on, the more I realized to exclude him would be playing into the very problems with the system that I was seeing. Yeah, because it's not about like, oh, well, women would rule better, like down with the men or, you know, or vice versa. It's really about balance, you know, it's really about balance. And how do we, yes, it's swung way too far to the patriarchal systems. And that's, yes, why we're in a lot of the trouble we're in. But, you know, Barrett is more feminist than I am. And, and his voice was important. And, and the fact that we found each other and we honor each other in our, our, you know, own marriage and relationship seemed an important part of the story because he and I lived our whole lives before we found each other. You know, we were already like forties, fifties and, um, and we did a lot of work to get there. And that was important. And he was important to this story. And his questions are important. And the, for other men to see a man asking those questions and to see other men honoring women like that seemed almost more important than just another woman telling other women's stories. No, mm-hmm. I do. I think that's, a, that's, that's very powerful. And I can, I can without, without fully knowing the details, I can imagine that it was not a welcome decision necessarily in all quarters to, to have the, the book be presented that way. That's what, what period of time did the, um, did the conversations take place over? Uh, Probably a couple of years. Oh, really? It took a couple of years. Yeah. 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 Did the, did the nature of the conversations change as you did them? How, you know, how did you, was there a methodology? Was there, um, well, it was, again, I wanted it to be not an interview. I wanted it to be a conversation. Yeah. I wanted people to feel like a fly on the wall. Cause that's what I, that's like my dream. Like I always dream about like, if I were a fly on the wall in a conversation between, you know, Martin Luther King and whomever, you know, Gandhi, what would, what would that be? And I just wanted to give people that experience. So we really stayed it. We're, and we're both, you know, have ethnographic training so we could have interviewed in particular ways um and there were particular questions i wanted answered i wanted to know i wanted to lead people up to say like okay but and then how did you step into your power like for as a woman i feel like we go and it's probably not just a female thing it's probably people in general um you go about life, but then there's a moment where you just like hit it, you know, and everything the world told you you can't do and everything that people told you that would stop you um, 
all of those stories just fall away and you get it and you find your power and it's just like this opening and 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 then anything's possible, right? Um, and this is even beyond just like the, the spiritual aspect. We're talking just like power in whatever you're choosing to do with your life. And so that's kind of what I was hoping to get from each woman, whether we got there or not, or whether, you know, they felt that or not specifically um, was different for each person. Um, but yeah. Did there... Um... Were there, were there any archetypes or consistencies that did emerge in terms of a pivotal moment or um, a shared narrative where, where, you know, you talked about stepping into your power or, or owning your, your power? Um, of course, everybody's story is their own and unique. Yeah, everyone was so different, right? And that's why I broke it up into the three archetypes, the mm -hmm. healer, the teacher, the artist. Gosh, I feel like everybody arrived at it so differently. And maybe that was the teaching in and of itself, right? That it doesn't look like one way. Multitudes. Like take, yeah. yeah, like take Erin Courier. She's the artist um, at the very end. And she's the one most political one. And we left the most political for the very end, right? But she, um, I remember asking her, like, when do you remember like stepping into your power, you, you've been a working artist since you were 20, you know, like what person can say that? And here you are, you know, like, how did that happen? When did you know you had it? Like, what was it? And she just thought about it for a good long while. She's very thoughtful. And she says, um, when I could trust myself, because she does these, she paints portraits and then she collages over them, right? Mm. And then she has to find it again. So she says, I knew I stepped into my power when I trusted myself to destroy a perfect portrait to collage over it and hope that it finds its way back to me, to trust that it would find its way back to me That's under cool. my hands. Isn't that cool? I'm like, yeah, yeah, that, that was totally unexpected. You know, that's a whole different way of thinking about stepping into your power. And it was so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. How has, um, how has, or has the pandemic impacted how you've gotten the book out? Um, <laughs> and do you, did you have a, did you have a different plan? Um, well, you know, the whole typical, like, do readings at bookstores <laughs> and such, that was kind of out of the question. But, you know, so I just kind of utilized the social, very social media that <laughs> I don't like to spend a lot of time on. And I just, the nice thing was that people were taking the time to write to me their thoughts about the book, mm. you know, and not just people I knew. And that meant a lot to me. So that kind of became what I shared with other people like, Oh, here's a, here's a man who bought this book for his daughter and he reads it to her every night, you know, and this is what he's getting from it. Or this is, you know, a, diff a whole different way of, of it being looked at. Um, you know, man who wrote me and said it, it's reminding him so much of the mom he lost 10 years ago. And, you know, just all the beautiful comments that I'm like, that's, that's all I can share is other people's experience of, of this, this, this little book, you know, that just, um, 
yeah, I guess I didn't have like a normal coming out, but but it, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I get, you know, I get college professor this one said, I'm going to order, order it for my class. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, so it's being used in ways I wouldn't have expected. And and people are like this one. Um, he was a blues, uh, a blue angel, uh, one of those fighter pilots. He, he, he wrote to me, he said, I bought it for my wife and I started reading it. <laughs> you know, I bought it for Christmas and I, I can't put it down, you know, and he's That's like, incredible. every man has to read it, you know, and it's so nice to hear these things. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that's interesting um, that that's where you go because I've talked to other, other musicians or, you know, other, other creators who have put things out into the world over the last almost year now. Yeah. And um, it's been a common refrain is that, they're they're having more of a um a personal connection with the people on the other side um of their output than they normally would yeah. um because they've had to uh i think because they've had to kind of take up the mantle of some of the marketing themselves and put themselves out there more um mm-hmm. that uh, it's it's established more they, they are getting more direct personal feedback and i think yeah. that that's got to be a very special feeling that's you know it's a nice yeah, thing to have. I think that's nice. Completes yeah, in the a world that can you. be so exactly. Yeah, and yeah. and it doesn't matter how many people read the book, and it doesn't. You know, it's it's a it was kind of a project of the heart, you know, and uh, a way also for me to honor these women, um, and also to grease my wheels for the next book. You know, it's just and that's how art is, right? Whether it's music or or a painting or uh, writing, you know, we. We do it and we do it because we have to do it. And uh, we move on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> and do you know the next one? Are you, are you ready to talk about the next one? <laughs> well, that one will be the three-year retreat. Yeah, it'll be talking about like that spiritual practice and that spiritual um, quest. Uh, the It's interesting because as I, I write the bones of it, I... I I don't know what other way to write about it except for to for it to be kind of some kind of magical surrealist, um, you know, fiction, not fiction mm. <laughs> kind of book. Because I don't want the reader to be stuck on like, was that real or not real? You know, I don't even want them to ask if that's real or not real. I just kind of want them to just come along for the ride and see where, where they find themselves at the end. It's very, is it very uh, like Carlos Castaneda sort of yeah. approach? Well, that's a name I haven't thought of in years. Um, that's so funny. I, I do have one last question before I let you go. And it's not a profound one. Um, <laughs> did you physically lose your ability to speak? Because if it's, if, if you, if it's a muscle that wasn't used and I, I'm sorry to ask such a mundane question, but no, it's, no. It's, it, it, I'm so curious. That about was that. the hardest thing about coming out was speaking. Yeah. Um, I still don't think my voice is what it was before. It still sounds uh, hoarse and weird to me, like that muscle that mm. just wasn't used for a long time. But yeah, I, w- I came out, I could only speak maybe 15 minutes, then 30 minutes, and I would have to stop. Um, I found a, the good trick was just to go and wash dishes, no matter whose house I was at. <laughs> you get left alone, <laughs> you know, because I, I literally just couldn't, I couldn't speak, you know. And even the exchange of like looking in people's eyes, and, and speaking to him, like it was such, so 
uh, energetically like intense for me that um, I, I had to often just back off and back off. Um, but the speaking, I lost words. I couldn't remember words for things. I couldn't remember people's names. I couldn't uh, like it, it just like it was just kind of like I really kind of tried to get beyond like concepts. <laughs> and I did a good job because when I came back out, I just what's the name of that thing? What's it, da, 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 you know, and then and then it starts coming back and it starts getting. But it was really at first um, a chore to, to communicate out loud. And then and Barrett says I do this sometimes still. Um, I would have like a conversation and the person I would, I would see the person kind of leaning in and kind of, I'm like, I'm like, am I, am I speaking? Like I was thinking and I was thinking so loud that I thought I was speaking, but the words weren't coming out of my mouth. Wow. That's an amazing phenomenon. <laughs> I, it's a, it's a neurologist field. That, that's, that's oh, let's not even go there. So many physical things happened to the body as wow. a result of, wow. of going inward so deeply. Yeah. Well, yeah. I have a, um, I have a, a 13 year old son who has cerebral palsy and he's nonverbal. And, um, I forget that he's nonverbal. Like I, you know, and I was thinking that also when you, when you were on the retreat, like there's other ways you communicate. And I don't know how that's, you know, if that's welcome in that context, but I can tell you just in my life with my son, like I can be in the room with him. I can be around him. And, 90% of the time, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what he wants. Um, I, I know his cues, but it's fascinating. Like I, you know, when I, when I have the ability to take myself out of the situation, the and, situation. Just, and just observe it, it's fascinating that, um, you know, I, I, I never think about him as someone who doesn't communicate. communicate. He just doesn't speak. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Absolutely. My sister was a sign language interpreter and um, so I, I picked up some sign language from her and it always fascinated me. Like, like what different part of our brain are we using just because we're using our hands to speak instead of our mouth, yeah. you know? And well, I, he's and also think, blind, so he, he can't sign. So it's wow. fascinating to see him make He'll his find will something known. Else. He makes his will known yeah. Yeah. and not in, you know, nasty, aggressive ways. He's not, you know, it's not, screaming or acting out yeah. it's he's how just, old is he, he he's 13 wow yeah yeah it's wow. fascinating yeah. fascinating it's beautiful yeah. i mean that's kind of how i ended up i mean i always wanted to be a neurologist because i i used to be in high school and sit in medical stacks because i just wanted how does this brain work how does it do what it does my brother had an accident when he was 25 and he was 10 years older than me uh, sorry, 18 years older than me. So I was like barely seven when he had this accident and he went from this great, uh, it, you know, outgoing person to someone who couldn't even speak, couldn't even remember us, you know? And mm, then even right. as the word started coming back, it's like, well, he was told I'm his sister. So he thinks I'm his sister, but he doesn't quite know what that means and doesn't have the backstory for it. And so, but so, but how did he communicate and how did he make himself known and what happened to the brain and what part of the brain had, had um, the trauma, right? Um, it's fascinating to me. I, I was uh, obsessed with Oliver Sacks. I even mm -hmm. spent time with Oliver Sacks. Oh, wow. Um, because it just, it, yeah, like the way we communicate, the way we, we, we be, right? The way we are, the way we just show up no matter whether we see or can't see, 
In fact, I found that being blind was one of my big fears. Um, and I didn't know that going into retreat. Wow. And, and it can get very dark in that big desert. So what I started doing is on dark moon nights, um, I would just go for a walk, you know, when I just couldn't see without just even walk a right light. Into it. I just had to see with my feet. I learned to see with my feet. And yeah. you do that, you know, like yeah. it's amazing what we can do as humans, what we can adapt to. Well, thank you for spending time with me and uh, yeah, and, and sharing so much. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank and- you. It was lovely to speak with you. Thank you, Lizette Garcia. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the entire team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. Join us again next week, and in the meantime, be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.